If you have a Bible, please open it to John chapter 7, as we will begin a new section in the book of John. Sometimes we will talk about the prosperity gospel, and it is held in ill repute by people in this church generally, and rightly so. We think of it as a false gospel, as one that perverts the real gospel in many ways and in deep ways. We think that the people who peddle this sort of gospel do so to fleece the flock of God for their own good and specifically for their own checkbooks. We believe that it minimizes the greatness and the goodness of Christ. We have warned about this before. We will continue to warn about it into the future. For me personally, and I've talked to many people about this when it comes to the the prosperity gospel, it is simply amazing that people can listen to that kind of preaching with Bibles sitting on their lap and not hear the falsehood of what is being given to them. Jesus talked almost immediately in his ministry about his followers being persecuted. He calls for us to take up our crosses. Peter and John praised and gave honor and glory to God because they got to share in the sufferings of Christ when they were mistreated by the Sanhedrin and they were jailed for it. Paul said that we are nothing more than sheep to be slaughtered. Paul even asked for God to take away a thorn in his flesh and God flatly said, no, I'm not going to do that. Peter tells us that our sufferings are not yet to the point of shedding blood, implying that for many people, their sufferings will come to the point of shedding blood. I I mean, it's hard to read any page, just any page in the New Testament. You can blindly open the New Testament, and it's hard to find a page where the sufferings of God's people are not put forward and are frankly not alleviated the way the prosperity gospel proclaims. It is, I think, something that is rampant and something that is unbiblical. And because both of those things are true, it is rampantly unbiblical and it is rampant in our culture, we have tried to guard ourselves against that. But even if we can block that tsunami from coming in, that tidal wave from coming in, there are little bits and pieces of polluted water that might seep through. Today we're going to talk about one piece of that prosperity puzzle that is, I think, capable of making it past many of our defenses. And that is when we talk about claiming the promises of God. I I find that that word can be malleable. And so sometimes people say it and they use it in such a way that they mean little more by claiming God's word than simply claiming it to be true. And so you have somebody like, as I used him last week, I thought I would use him again this week, Rick Warren, who said in a little devotional, he said, when we pray, we can claim the promises of God. Why do we do this? Because it helps us remember what God has promised. Do you know there are over 7,000 promises in the Bible? These promises provide answers to all our needs and problems. And so, and then in the devotional, he lists a number of promises. And he says, choose one of the promises from today's devotional and write a prayer to God expressing your gratitude for his unfailing love and faithfulness. Talk to him about his promise and tell him that you are trusting in him to fulfill his promise. Listen, the way that Rick Warren uses the word claiming there, there's almost nothing wrong with. What he means by that is you are simply trusting that the word of God is true. And so when you claim it, in that sense, you're simply claiming this is true. Others don't handle it nearly as well. This from the, the very well-established and well-known devotional of guideposts, 
where an author writes, the Bible is filled with verses that promise you God's help on life's journey, but it's up to you to activate these promises. That is the same kind of language for claiming these promises. The promises sit there, but they're not true for you until you go and grab them. You need to claim them. You need to activate them. Joel Osteen is perhaps the best example of this. Frankly, part of the difficulty of the prosperity gospel is some of what they say, a lot of what they say, sounds really good and it sounds really faithful and it sounds really biblical. So this quote from Joel Osteen from his book, I Declare 31 Pro- Why does he always name things so badly? I Declare 31 Promises to Speak Over Your Life. One of the things that he says in that book is this, God is faithful to his word. All of his promises are yes and amen. That means if you will do your part and believe, even though it looks impossible, and not let your mind, your emotions, or other people talk you out of it, then God promises in due season, and at the right time, he will bring it to pass. It may not happen the way that you expect it or on your timetable, but God is a faithful God. It will happen. I honestly might quibble with how he words it in there, but that's like dead on. That's good. Joel Osteen's faithful there. But then the dude turns around and he says this, I declare God is going before me, making crooked paths straight. He has already lined up the right people, the right opportunities, and solutions to problems I haven't had. No person, no sickness, no disappointment can stop his plan. What he promises will come to pass. Well, yeah, part of that is true. Nothing can stop God's plan and nothing can stop his promises, but that doesn't mean that he's going to make crooked places straight. How, how does that play in parts of the world? Are we going to look back in history? Let's transport him to 19, or 1861 and have him look at a black slave and say, listen, God's going to make those crooked places straight. Well, he hadn't made it straight for about 150 years. Those places are still decently crooked. And for somebody who was born then, who would likely die in slavery, it is hard to imagine that God ever made that crooked thing straight for them. It's hard to imagine that the problems that they haven't had yet were going to be fixed by having the right people and the right opportunities and the right solutions. They, they had problems and the right opportunities, the right solutions were never presented to them. This is the testimony of history. This is not a promise of God. God doesn't promise you an easy path in life. He doesn't promise that he's going to plow the hills that are before you. The question then becomes, how are we supposed to approach God's word and his promises? And it seems like an odd passage for this. Next week, we're going to come back to this passage. Something just kind of caught my eye this week. And because I'm the one with the microphone, you have to listen to what I say. So because of that, we're going to focus on a bit of John 7 today. John 7, 1 through 13, but specifically in verses 3 through 5, and his brothers speaking to him, uh, speaking to our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you would read with me, let us read the first 13 verses of the seventh chapter of the book of John. John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secrets if he seeks to be known openly, or no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You 
Go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is the word of our God. We are going to focus just on verses 3 through 5. It will fit into the greater scheme of things, and we're going to talk about that next week. But I want to focus on the brothers and what they said, and that very clear statement for John that they said these things. For what was the reason why they said this in verse 5? For not even his brothers believed in him. When John starts this passage, he says, after this, meaning after the events that were just described. Those events happen in a span of a day or two, even though chapter 6 is a very long chapter. It doesn't progress far chronologically. We would expect that that happened over the course of a day. And it happens about six months prior to the festival of booths. So the, the Passover and booths happen at sort of opposite ends of the calendar. And so there's about six months that have happened here and passed here. And Jesus, no doubt, has gone through Galilee and done much teaching and much preaching as we have in the other, other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John doesn't focus on this. He's very particular in the pieces that he puts into his Gospel, which makes this all the more odd. He says that he won't go up to Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him there. This is hearkening back to John chapter 5, verse 18, when Jesus got in trouble with the authorities there. After healing a man who was 38 years lame, he heals him on the Sabbath and tells him to pick up his mat and walk. And when they question him about it, Jesus says, well, I mean, my dad's working until today, and so I'm working. In 5.18, John records that this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They wanted to kill him because of that. Now, the feast was going on, and the Feast of Booths happens to be a major festival for the Jews. It was a festival about the harvest, not the harvest of wheat, but of olives and grapes. And in Exodus 23 and Leviticus 23, you can read about that festival. And in this time, in this day and age, this was probably one of the greatest population surges that would happen in Jerusalem. Everyone would be there. And this is one of the reasons why his brothers plead with him to go the population there will be exploded. If you want to make yourself known, that's the place to be. Now, it's interesting that John includes this because this little interaction with his brothers adds absolutely nothing to the narrative. Nothing to the narrative. It doesn't progress it forward. The brothers say, go, he says, no, but then he ends up going anyways. It would have been much easier if John had just left it out and just said Jesus showed up late to the festival. Because there's a number of people who look at this and say, Jesus is lying. He's, he's clearly deceiving his brothers. He says, I'm not going to go, but then he goes. He's duplicitous. He's deceiving. It makes difficulties at the very least. Good news. We'll deal with those difficulties next week. We don't care much about them this week. The question then is, why does he include this passage in there? Why include something that makes his narrative more difficult and makes the presentation of Jesus more difficult? I think it all has to do with verse 5. I think it all has to do with the fact that these sayings of his brothers, what his brothers said to him, demonstrated that they didn't believe in him. One of the wonderful things about John's gospel is he's trying to point out the differences in belief. There are some people who believe, and there are some people who believe. There are people who really, really get it, and there are people who say they really, really get it. 
This has been a theme going throughout John's gospel, and it's clearly here. Because when you look at verses 3 through 4, when you look at what the, the brothers actually say, if we removed verse 5 from there, and we removed what Jesus said to them, it would be very, very hard for us to point out what was wrong with it, and what's more than that, it would be very hard for us to even think that what they said was a sign of their unbelief. But John clearly thinks that it's unbelief. He clearly thinks that it is a symbol of the fact that they don't get it. So the question becomes, how, in verses 3 and 4, are the brothers displaying unbelief in Jesus? I don't think that it's because they're saying it sarcastically. I don't think it's because they're saying things that are false. I think that they are very truthful in what they're reporting, and I think that they mean what they're reporting. So remember, in order for them to, to think that this is sarcastic, we would have to assume that they didn't actually think that these things that he was doing in secret were actually being done in secret. So if they're saying, listen, whatever this is that you're doing in secret, why don't you go do it publicly in Jerusalem? And they would have to shake their heads like that to really get the point across. In order for that to happen, they would have to have not believed in the miracles that have been widely reported. Remember, John is giving us a picture, but he thinks, I believe, that we've read the synoptics. We know that Jesus has been circling around Galilee doing a number of different miracles, not just making bread out of nothing, but also performing healings and exorcisms. He's been going around doing this repeatedly to people. What's more, remember that the first miracle that was done in the book of John was at Cana in Galilee, and his mom watched him do it. His mom watched him do it, who happens to be related to his brother's. And it is impossible for me to think, given what happened to Mary, that Mary never reiterated any of the miraculous events of the angel and the appearance and the going down to Egypt and the coming back up, how her life was flipped over by their older brother. To think that she didn't talk about their older brother and the, the very pronouncement that this one, this, this, this guy here, he is going to save Israel. To think that those words never came out of her mouth are unbelievable. So they would have had to dis disagree with their mother on her approximation of who Jesus was. They would have had to say that she was wrong and how she understood that. She would have had to have been an absolute and total liar and sexually immoral and for them to believe that. And so I have, I have no doubt that what they're saying here, they believe. They believe in his miracles. They think that he is acting somewhat in secret by doing all this stuff up in Galilee, which is frankly just farmland. Go to the big city. Make yourself known. Furthermore, their unbelief wasn't because they said things that weren't true. Jesus did want to make things known publicly. He, he did want to draw all men to himself, as he would say in 1232. He did talk about a harvest coming to him back in John 4. Even the healing in John 5, what the Jews wanted to kill him for doing, he could have done it on Sunday. That, that, listen, not to be crass, but the lame man wasn't going anywhere too fast, right? It's not like he wasn't going to be found. He was going to be there the next day. But Jesus, instead of waiting a day, heals him on the Sabbath, makes a public spectacle of it, and then lectures them about that public spectacle when they disagree with him. It's not like Jesus is not trying to draw people. He himself says, I called you the twelve in the passage that we just got done reading. So it's not that Jesus doesn't want to have a crowd around him. And it's not as though he didn't have people who believed in him in Jerusalem. 
Now, we would loosely call them disciples, and maybe his brothers are going a little bit far there, but there are people there who do believe in him. In verse 12, we hear that some are grumbling, saying, he is a good man. Maybe those are the people who the brothers are saying, listen, they they heard about you, they saw that work, they want to follow you, you've got to go there so that you can win them as well. And frankly, I think that we would agree, and I think Jesus would agree with their assessment. You cannot work in secret if you want to make yourself known. In order for Jesus to be known, he couldn't stay in Galilee. He would have to go to Jerusalem. In order to be lift up in front of the world, he couldn't stay in Galilee. He would have to go to Jerusalem. Nothing they have said is a sign of unbelief yet. Nothing that they have said has been untrue. Until you get to one word, If you do these things, if, if what we have said is true, show yourself. That's a strong word. That's an imperative. They look at their older brother and they say, listen, I don't know why you're doing what you're doing, but if you are going to do what you have claimed to do, and they, they even have here this understanding of sort of revealed and hidden knowledge. Like they know things about Jesus that everyone else doesn't know. That there is stuff that you have not revealed yet. And I think that that would be hint, hint. Mom, talk to us about you. You need to make it known. Go and show yourself. This doesn't sound to my ears too terribly different from Matthew chapter 4 when the tempter comes and says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, if this is who you are, prove it. If this is what you claim to be, prove it. If these are the ends that you desire, make it happen. If Jesus is to draw all people to himself, to take away the sins of the world, because his Father loves the world, if we are to see these things as good and precious promises, we need to be careful that we don't tell Jesus, as his brothers are here, how to make those promises true. His brothers are flat out looking at Jesus and saying, if these things are true, if you do these things, go. We think that they're true, but you need to do it this way. You need to act this way. This is exactly what Peter does in Matthew's gospel. After he confesses Jesus as the Christ, he says, I will not let that happen. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be turned over. I'm going to be crucified and die. And Peter says, no, that's not going to happen. I won't let that happen. You will do it my way. The promises of God will come in my manner, not in yours. Telling God how to make his promises true is a dangerous sinful mark of unbelief and nothing else. God, you promised that you had plans for my good. I claim that promise so that you will take the cancer away from me for that is quite clearly for my good. God, you've promised that I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me and I claim that promise over my job so that I might get the promotion that I want. God, you've promised me comfort and peace that passes understanding. I claim this promise over my relationship so that the discomfort that surrounds me might be taken away. These are your promises and I'm telling you, I'm claiming them so that you will do this thing that I want. That is exactly what the brothers are doing. They are looking at Jesus just as we would look at Jesus and saying, these things are true, you will do it this way. That one little imperative, that is the sign of unbelief. 
That is where their unbelief manifests itself. They claim to know how instead of trusting that Jesus knows better. This is an insidious little thing because it is a little thing, but it can rip your life up. I want to remind you just of three things that Jesus is to help us. These understandings are incredibly insidious because they change Jesus into something he is not. First, I want to remind you that Jesus is manna. Jesus is manna. He, in John chapter 6, has made an overwhelming show that he is indeed the bread that comes down from heaven. And one of the great depictions of that chapter is he's not just like Moses. He's better than Moses because Moses might have allowed, Moses might have been the man through whom God brought the manna or announced the manna in. But Jesus says, I'm not just bringing you other things. I'm bringing you myself. I am myself am indeed the bread of life. He's not a conduit through which we go and get the better things. He is the better thing. He and he alone is the better thing. Listen, he's, not, he's not a bank teller who you come to and you say, listen, I've been told by Ephesians that I've got like this inheritance and I would like to, to withdraw a little bit so I can buy a house. So Jesus, if you'd scamper to the back and get me some of the good stuff, like, I'd really appreciate that. He's not a conduit to get you the things of the world that you really want but can't have. That's not the purpose of Jesus Christ. Jesus has made the argument throughout chapter 6 that I am the bread of life. I am the joy. I am the comfort. I am the good that you seek. There is nothing else. Joel Osteen quotes. He says, all of God's promises are yes and amen. You know where he gets that from? He gets that from 2 Corinthians 2.20 and he quotes it wrong. Because it doesn't just say that they are yes and amen. They say that all of God's promises are yes and amen in him, in Christ. That is where God's promises are true. God's promises aren't true through Christ somewhere else. They are promised in him. They are true in him. This is what Ephesians 1.3 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places except it says, has blessed us in him with every spiritual. Where, is, where are all the spiritual blessings held? Where are all of our blessings held? They are not held in things of the world. They are held in Christ. And what's more, he is the manna. He is there for us. He has already been given to us. He doesn't say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bless us when we ask in faith with all the spiritual blessings in Christ. He says, he has already done it. He has given you the manna. And friends, be incredibly careful because if you are using Jesus as a conduit, I guarantee you, you end up using him as a conduit not for the things of heaven but for the things of earth. People who want to claim the promises of God use it to gain things of the earth. John has something to say about that. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Friend, using Jesus Christ to get things from the world is a clear demonstration that you do not love God. And what's more, amazingly, God's love is not in you. Jesus is not a conduit. He is the very manna that we need. He is our great treasure, our great inheritance, and our great joy. 
if he is God's greatest possession, his beloved, then how could he not be for us as well? Our pleading with Jesus to give us stuff is a good indictment of how we view Jesus. When we plead with Jesus to give us health, wealth, prosperity, peace, not his own presence, his righteousness, his resurrection, we have misplaced our faith. John, Peter, and Paul were all willing to give their lives, not to get more stuff. They were willing to give their lives to get Jesus, to give glory to Jesus, because he was better than the stuff they had. Let it be so for us. Stand on God's promises. Trust in them. For they are all yes and amen in Christ. He is our manna. Secondly, Jesus is our master. While Jesus is not a conduit, he is also not our servant. Many times when we claim God's promises, all we are doing is we are doing so in a way that tells God how he must fulfill his promises. You have promised to bless me, my job doesn't feel like a blessing. You've promised to bless me, but my finances are in ruin. You've promised to bless me and give me a great inheritance, but my house is meager. You aren't upholding your promises, God. The insinuation of all of these blessings is that we only think that blessings can be what we want them to be. Outside of just making up promises, which frankly happens a huge amount with people who talk like this, like making God will make your crooked path straight. That is not a promise. Like Rick Warren might find 7,000 promises in scripture. That ain't one of them. Rick Warren didn't say that that was Joel Osteen, just for clarification, but it's still not a promise, no matter who said it. Unless it's God said it, then it would be a promise, but God didn't say it. Outside of just making up promises and taking any promise that they find outside of their context, one of the worst things people do is simply give them a meaning that God doesn't intend. Romans 8.28, famous passage. You should hold on to this passage, sear it in your brain. We know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You know what Paul turns around and lists under the category of all things? He lists absolutely nothing that you would think is good. He says, you know what kinds of things work for your good? Horrible, wretched things. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. None of those things are good. But he says, that is what God intends for your good. You don't get to tell God what his blessings are. He is God. You are not. You don't get to be master over Jesus. Jesus is master. These things don't sound like good, but Paul says that these things happen for our good. Friend, you need to come under the consideration that getting cancer might be good for you. You need to come to a place where you can understand that God ruining your finances might be the best thing that ever happens to you. That God destroying your health is a good thing. That God ruining your car was fantastic for you spiritually. You have to come to a place where you can agree with the great promise that Paul mentions here, that all things that God does for those who love him, all of the things that happen to them, happen to them for their good. That includes the things that we consider blessing and the things that we don't consider blessing. Listen, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, 
If his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So you ask for something. What Jesus is saying there is not just that God will give you what you want, but he will always give you better than what you want. He will always answer you rightly. So that when you answer for the cancer to not be taken away from you, guess what? He's not giving you a stone instead of bread. He's giving you what is better for you. So that when you ask God for a TV and instead he puts you on the unemployment line, he's not giving you a serpent instead of what you've asked for. He's indeed giving you something better than what you asked for. That is the point of those passages. You ask, ask, but God is a good father. He will only give you what is good for you. He will not keep things back that are bad for you or that are good for you. Even if that is something that you don't think is a blessing because Jesus is master over history and time and he is master over your life and he knows what is good and you have no idea what's good for you. Jesus is not just a bank teller again here to do our bidding and give us whatever we want. He is a king and he is a kind king and he always gives us what is best. He is our master and our Lord. He is our head and our savior. And because of that, he refuses to give us less things and instead gives us the best things. Let him be master over your life. Let him tell you how his, how his promises will work out in your life. Jesus is manna, he is master, and lastly, he is magnanimous. He is magnanimous, he is, he is giving, he is not tight-fisted. He is incredibly generous with all that he has. He isn't stingy. This can be the thinking that creeps into our heads when we think that God's inheritance is out there and it just needs to be asked for. As though God, again, is a bank teller and he's keeping your inheritance in the back room and he's not going to give it to you until you come with the magic formula. You say you believe, but can you say pretty please with that? Because it's not gonna, I'm not going to give it to you until you kind of maybe say Jesus is Lord to me. Maybe, you know, let's find the right wording that we can use to get at the inheritance. Listen, God isn't stingy. He's not withholding things from us. Now, we have to be careful with this because it's not untrue that we do need to ask for things. And so, in this vein, somebody would come to a passage like James 4, passage right before what pastor read to us as gospel assurance today. And they'll say, one of the things that James says is you don't have because you don't ask. And so all we're saying is you've got to go to God to ask. But let's, let's look at why they don't ask and see what James is really saying there. James says this in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now let's walk through that carefully. What are they doing? Why don't they ask? They covet and they don't have, so what do they do? They murder. They don't ask because they're prideful, because they think that they can just go out and get it. They don't ask because they don't think that they need God. This is made all the more manifest because what will Paul or what will James eventually say at the end of that passage that Pastor read this morning? Humble yourselves. The issue here is pride. The issue is that they think that they don't need God to get the things they want. 
What's more, they ask and don't receive because they ask for it wrongly to spend it on their passions. Again, God is not just going to give you what you want. God isn't going to give you something so that you can spend it on yourself. He is master, so he gives us what is good. But he is magnanimous, so he gives us what is good. We don't have, not just because we are self-sufficient, but we ask and we don't get it because we want to waste it on ourselves. The problem for the claimant crowd is that they ask for stuff that is earthly and not immediately available to them. So they ask for millions of dollars. They want to be rich. They want to be famous. These things take time. They don't just send you a check in the mail. So they think that God wants to give them those things, and so they pray, and they don't get it, and they pray again, they don't get it, and they pray, and again, and again, and again, and again. James is saying, listen, if you ask and you didn't get it, that was the first problem. That must mean that the second problem is something of an issue. If you ask and you didn't receive, you ask because you're asking for the wrong stuff. Don't think that God is stingy, making you wait for the good things that he's going to give to you. There is no doubt in my mind that this has to take up some space in the mind of people who think that they just need to ask God for favor. What is taking God so long to give us favor? God wants me to be healed, What is taking so long for him to remove the cancer or the headaches or the pain? What is taking him so long to do this? Is it that he's stingy? I believe. I pray. Nothing's happening. Well, if you ask, that kicks James' first problem off. If you ask for things to waste it on yourself and you don't understand that God sometimes gives you difficult things for your own good, That's his second problem. But don't ever, friend, don't ever think that God is withholding good things from you. God never withholds good things from you. He never waits until you've shown a faith level 10 to give you good things. Anyone who asks in faith will receive. Anyone who asks God for what is good, he will give what is good. God didn't just keep you from being a millionaire because he's stingy. He didn't keep you from being a millionaire because you lack faith. He didn't keep, he didn't make you one because it isn't good for you. He didn't make you one because he has promised that he wouldn't give you stones when you ask for bread. And there are better things than the things of the world that he will not allow you to be led into. God is good. He is magnanimous. He is giving in all of his ways. Friends, do not demand that God acts a certain way. Don't claim that his promises must be fulfilled for you this way or that way, as though you pridefully know what is best for you. In humility, simply say to God, you have made promises. You have made promises for my prosperity, for my peace. That prosperity might not look, as Joel Osteen rightly admits, how I think it ought to look. But I trust your word. I don't need to claim it unless I'm claiming that it's true. I simply trust in your word. We must realize that Jesus is better than anything that we could ever ask for. We must realize that he is also Lord and our attitude of the request must reflect that we can't tell God how to do what we want him to do. And we have to realize that Jesus is incredibly gracious and good. He wants to give you good things and he always gives you good things. Listen, He's not slow to fulfill our promises and God has given us everything that we need in Jesus Christ. He has taken our sin and our shame and our guilt on the cross that we might be united to God in one family and to prove that that has been effective, he raised Jesus Christ from the grave 
So our ultimate hopes are going to be fulfilled. Death is destroyed. The grave has lost its sting. And because of that, God has given us everything that we could hope or need in Jesus Christ. He is everything. He is not simply the way we get the things of the world. He is actually the way that we reject the things of the world. And we get better things. So trust God who has given you so much. Pray in faith, but wait in humility and hope finally for something better than this world. A hope of heaven and of dwelling with Jesus Christ in his presence forever. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you will indeed give us good and wonderful things, things beyond our imagining. We know that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We also know that at your right hand is Jesus Christ. Give us, then, what we need to make your name great and provide us with your spirit that we might be equipped for every good work, that you might unify us around the gospel. We pray that you would give us eyes to see beyond this world and ask you for better things than simply more jewel-encrusted worldly life. Give us joy in suffering for the gospel. Give us peace in poverty for the gospel. Give us hope through death in the gospel. Give us eyes to see majesty, glory, and the goodness of Jesus Christ and give us his spirit and fullness. We pray these things for our good and for your utmost glory. Amen.